In Mick Jagger's 1978 ode to promiscuity and decadence, the song Some Girls contains the line, I'll buy you a house back on Zuma Beach and give you half of what I own. For generations, Malibu has been shorthand for sunshine-drenched refuge and exclusivity. This storied stretch of California coastline has been the inspiration for music and lyrics from the Beach Boys to Courtney Love. The Ramones were also inspired by a beach, but their sandy New York City retreat wasn't for the tanned, quaffed, and affluent. They sang about the hot concrete of Rockaway Beach, a destination accessed via a grimy subway car instead of a convertible. This next guest has a personal connection to both of these evocative locales. In fact, he ironically moved to Rockaway as an indirect result of the time he spent recording in Malibu. So how does the bleak climate of Rockaway winters inform, stimulate, or affect the creative process? If you have the resources to live in a perennially temperate and picturesque environment, is choosing instead to live in Rockaway a conscious act of training at altitude for the artistic spirit? We'll dig into these questions in a conversation that we recorded under the flight paths of JFK and just steps away from the eponymous beach immortalized by Didi Ramon. Today, musician, surfer, psychedelic enthusiast, and Rockaway resident, Mr. Andrew Van Weingarten. <sighs> Andrew, thanks for sitting down, man. I appreciate yeah, sure, it. My pleasure. Um, so tell me a little about how did you end up in Rockaway for the first time? What's your connection here? Well, I ended up in Rockaway through California in a way because in 2009 I went out to LA and in Malibu to record an album with MGMT um, and we ended up setting up in a house in Malibu kind of making our own studio setup and it was uh, the house belonged to the Stansfields and Pascal Stanfield was the son and he like offered to, to give me surf lessons Along with us, like recording there, so I, I learned it's to a, surf. A um, bonus perk. Yeah, I, I kind of got a, got a few lessons and had been, had been like thinking about and dreaming about surfing for a really long time already. So it was kind of I was just ready to dive in. And um, after that, I ended up coming back to New York and kind of was surprised to know what I was just kind of like, where can, can you surf in New York? And then I was like, wait, you know. This place kind of seemed um, like an impossible place to be this close to the big, one of the biggest cities in the world and kind of be this low-key. It really, it, I feel like, well, the secret's definitely out now, but um, not too long ago when I first started surfing out here, it was definitely had a little, it definitely had a, a, an element of bizarre secretiveness to it. Like taking a surfboard on the A train, like you would 100% yeah. get very strange looks. Um, and now it's it's like, you know, quickly becoming a maybe I'll say international surf destination, which is probably a mistake. Like I think <laughs> a lot of people I think saw uh, what went down at the Quick Pro in Long Beach and were like, oh New York is this great new surf destination. I'm like, no, not really. But I remember the first time that I remember really us surfing together and hanging out. I don't know if you remember that day. It was I think a spring a spring afternoon. It wasn't really a forecasted day. We just happened to be out there. It was really overcast and bizarre and it was like this really cool misto swell that came in. And about an hour into this session, this crazy electrical storm rolled in yeah. and everyone started to scatter from the water. And at first I was like, Come on, y'all scaredy cats. Come on, man. Let's just what are you doing? And so we stayed in and then about a half hour later, it got really crazy, and yeah, I was like, I, really think, close I think we should get out of the water. Yeah. And I went back to my place, and it, it just started to pour. The streets flooded, and the skies opened, and it was like this crazy electrical <laughs> storm. You could feel actually feel the electricity in the air. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> but I think that day is a really good metaphor for surfing and Rockaway in that it wasn't a day that was supposed to be good. It was like mm-hmm. these magical little moments that you kind of just happen to catch. And I think that's what makes surfing here so special slash frustrating sometimes is that yeah. you really, you know, I have a presence here. I have a bungalow, but I, I live, live, you know, on the Lower East Side. And I think in order to really get it on a regular basis, you have to like really live here full time. Is if yeah. you're looking at the forecast as opposed to out your window, you're going to have a very different experience. Yeah. I've, yeah, living this close, I've caught some really magical moments out there. At a few times where I'd be the only one surfing. Um, that's pretty rare, but, uh, you know, sometimes it's just everything lines up and you're, like you said, there's no forecasted waves at all. And, and I then, think the days when it's when it's supposed to be great and it's forecasted six days in advance and it's going to be on a sunny Saturday and there's a th- it's just like those aren't the days. Like yeah. it's crowded or it just doesn't <laughs> deliver, you know. And I think it's just really those those in between days, and that's what makes this place you know kind of so special. But what I like about surfing is that unlike skateboarding or snowboarding or some other action sports where the terrain is fixed, like surfing is always fluid. The waves are never the same. You never have the same experience. And I think because of that, it allows you to have these constant breakthroughs depending on your skill level, whether that's standing up for the first time or doing your first cutback or even first air, first barrel, whatever your skill level is. It always allows you to have you know these new experiences. Contrasted to the music industry, like how how do you maintain that sense of excitement once you reach whatever your benchmarks may be? Like, not you necessarily, but like your first Grammy, your first time on the Tonight Show, your first time rocking the garden or a massive festival. Like, once you kind of reach those benchmarks, how do you maintain that sense of, of excitement like the first time you, you, you got on stage? Is that a challenge? I think, yeah, the, the way Ben and I, my bandmate, try to approach that is by challenging ourselves to to make music that's totally different than anything we've made before. When we get into a studio, we don't have like a formula or even like a set way of working and creating that we that we utilize. So, you know, it's it's the, it's the experimentation that keeps it fresh, I think. And when you go in, do you do you find having some degree of parameters or foundation is that useful? Like for me personally, if a client gives me zero input, for what type of what type of photos they want, it can be sometimes intimidating. It's almost better to have a little bit of a framework and then yeah. build vertically. Like me personally, definitely. No, there's something really you know intimidating about just a blank slate, especially in in uh, studios, even home studios these days. You have kind of unlimited options. You know, you you can you can have like any effect you want. You don't even need a fancy studio to have like a really complex array of things you can do. So I I've have found I'm kind of taking me a long time to realize it though, if if I have an assignment and a deadline, I actually get things done and I like press myself to do it. Whereas if it's just completely open and it's all up to me, uh, a lot of times things kind of just stay. And I mean, you could spend six months trying to get just the right synth sound or whatever it yeah. may be, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and do you ever, I feel like, is that an impediment at some point? Like, it's yeah. the ultimate, like, you know, the skin is important, but the soul well, especially and the, the vibe the way is what really that, makes, makes the music, right? Yeah, because you're also dealing with, um, in my case, a uh, like close personal friendship um, that, you know, I've known my bandmates since we were 18 and we've been making music together. So that's almost 20 years. <laughs> And uh, there's going to be ups and downs and tensions and all this stuff. So that that adds another element, like another layer that 
has to be kind of managed and dealt with when making music. Um, so it's taking an already kind of personal and sensitive process, the creative process, and making it kind of like having to work with compromise and having to work with someone else's vision. Do you record a lot simultaneously, or do you a lot of do you do a lot of experimentation remotely? Send files. I mean, yeah, we've done some since he lives on the west coast. We've done some back and forth. Um, Sending sending ideas and stuff, but usually we work best when we're in the same space. So so that's on on the recording and and the creation front. In terms of on the performing front, mm-hmm. how do you maintain that level of excitement? I mean, there there must be days when it's the best. I mean, I'm sure you've experienced things that you know, quote unquote, civilians may have never experienced. I mean, it must be yeah. a fantastic experience, like being in front of that many people, and you're completely in control. And it's your, you know, for that brief moment in time, you're kind of the master of your universe. Like, how do you maintain that level of excitement? Is there days where you just phone it in? I mean, yeah. Well, that, I think that's it's maybe even more challenging in the performing performance um, kind of world of music to to keep it fresh and exciting, especially the way we tour and the way a lot of bands tour these days where like, we change up our set lists every show, but um, it's kind of the same structure and we're playing with some tracks on uh, master track system. It's mostly live, but still there's stuff. So that means we're like kind of on a grid structure and that does make it really challenging because you can't really just uh, feed off the crowd wing it, and, wing it as yeah. much. You can't just kind of like you can do extended jams and stuff like that. But I think for me, that's that's what makes um, once again like the experimentation and that the thrill of it being on the spot. That's what makes it enjoyable both as a performer and for me when I'm watching music. I like knowing that there's like a a risk involved. So is your is your love of those two elements? Performing and creation are they, are they inextricable? Would you choose to do just one if, in theory, you could? I mean, if you just had, yeah, if the economics allowed <laughs> you to just be the studio guy to put out music. Would you miss touring? Would you miss performing? Or is that the? Is I that definitely the prize? Lean, I lean more towards working in a studio, working on music and creating. Because um, I I never felt like I was made to be a performer. I enjoy I enjoy the experience and providing like a kind of immersive psychedelic concert for people but um not so much like an engaging being a front charismatic man, quote unquote thing yeah <laughs> yeah so do you do you have a process before you go on stage do you get butterflies do you have stage fright i mean like to no some degree process. i mean like it's pretty shameful i don't i don't even warm up my voice i'll just have like some cheetos and normally like yeah. I'm, I'm you have a <laughs> mental process i mean to overcome um the, like me personally the times when i've had to speak in public. I mean, it's the most nerve wracking time is right before you go on stage. And once you get that first sentence out, or I'm sure once you get those first couple of notes and you're like, Oh, I'm, I, I can do this. I got yeah. this. Like you kind of fall into the groove. Well, I think when you do it, I mean, we, we play some, some years we've played between 80 and a hundred shows, sometimes more when it's that frequent. Um, you get into the groove. Yeah. You, but even then like the shows that are more, I still get kind of a stage performance anxiety and, and the, the shows that are most kind of anxiety-inducing are the ones where you have lots of friends or family there, and like the more intimate shows too, which I generally enjoy. That's interesting. So I enjoy more, the club. More shows. nervous in front of an intimate, yeah. an intimate crew, especially with your family, than playing at a festival. I think at some points, when the crowd is like, when we play these like massive festivals, it just becomes abstract. Yeah, like, it's, it's just like a sea <laughs> of people. Um, 
So it's, it's easier to, to make it like this abstract, kind of absurd thing. And so do you find that anxiety and that excitement and the anticipation that you have right before you go on stage, are there any similarities between that and, like, say, that first set wave that you paddle into when your, your feet first hit the board? I mean, has surfing taught you anything about how to either well, compartmentalize or mitigate that fear or face it, overcome it? Definitely, um, you know, when it's like a, what for me is a, a bigger day and I'm standing on the beach looking out there, particularly if it's a spot that I don't know very well, like there's a lot of, like you really have to get psyched up. You gotta get in the zone. Yeah. And, and like, um, yeah, the, there's kind of, there's that, the fear factor of, of it's, it's, it's a physical. It's physical it's, harm. You don't yeah. want to be a kook. You don't, there's a lot, there's a lot yeah. at stake. I mean, the psychological aspect of surf, surfing, I think, is what really has, has kind of like thrown off a lot of surf sessions for me. But, but yeah, there's, there's definitely this kind of like, there's a whole complex mental world of surfing. <laughs> so, so someone, I guess, from an outsider or somebody who never has performed in front of a large crowd, it, it, that seems kind of ironic that, you know, in a situation that you may be used to just being completely in control, like you have your set list, you, you, you're prepared, you got this, you do 100 shows, and like you're kind of like completely in charge of your environment, and then purposely putting yourself in the context of surfing must be really humbling because you're that's I think one of the beautiful things about surfing is that you're completely not in control like mother nature is ultimately going to decide your fate yeah and I think that's what makes it kind of special is like you have to have that sense of of trust and humility that definitely other elements of performance you probably don't necessarily have to address yeah I mean well I, I think in general um Maybe through surfing a little a little bit, but I think um, the respect that surfing teaches surfing teaches you to have for the for the ocean and for the strength of the waves. I think it's it's kind of an important lesson that I take with me in other aspects of life. Just kind of like doing things with care and with respect, and I think that's also in line with um, with a sort of psychedelic awareness. Like when I've been on psychedelics you kind of have this heightened uh connection and empathy and kind of understanding of all living things and and kind of of reality itself and having that kind of respect and uh care of, of your actions i think is really important and it takes a degree of of just surrender and letting go in a sense too like yeah speaking to that's the, another the drug thing. element yeah, if yeah. there's one thing that you are not facing in your regular life, whatever baggage or issues you have, like that's the one thing you're not going to be able to run from when, yeah. when you're on drugs. I think that's why some people find it useful. Yeah, and then when, when you're surfing and you're getting tumbled by a wave, you kind of just have to like let it, let it go, let it happen, you know? And yeah. It's kind of maybe some... <laughs> um, let me ask, ask you this, shifting gears, what, are, what do you think of the state of the music business right now? I, mean, I feel like with the developments in the last 10 years, whether it's streaming or file sharing or you know, digital recording, on one hand, it seems like it's really democratized the industry in that you could be a teenager in your basement with a relatively low barrier of entry and essentially make, quote unquote, real music, and then also have the means to distribute it to the world. So that is yeah. completely transformative. On the flip side, you know, you have your, your Beyonce's and your Foo Fighters and your Kanye's. Like, they've adapted. They're doing fine. They've managed to find a way. The music middle class seems to have gotten squeezed. Like, do you think your career would be in a vastly different place if you started 10 years ago? Would you be able to be doing what you did if you start now? It's, it's funny because we, 
with my band, we, we kind of got into the music industry sort of on the last wisps of the like kind of more old school music industry format where the, really the label is more like a, like a bank. Or it's, a, it's a bank, and, exactly. And, they, but it's, it's a bank where they take 80% of all money that goes back to pay the loans that they give you. Um, which is pretty. Funny. It's a bank with some <laughs> shady accounting. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then everybody was sort of. It was like wild west with with streaming services and the the major labels, which we were on up until recently, took full advantage of that kind of confusion where nobody knew how to handle it. And you know, they were. You know, Sony was a thirty or twenty something percent owner owner of Spotify. So they were licensing their catalog to Spotify, licensing it basically, to themselves. Yeah, and basically <laughs> left hand feeding the right. It's like a triple dip. And I think in the end of it, it's really the artist that gets... I mean, I'm not going to sit here and complain about what I do for a living because I think it's really fortunate and amazing. But in the music industry, the way it's set up, it's the artist that kind of gets the just scraps. And, and it's not really fair. It's not really set up in the artist's favor at Did, all. When you first got signed or got into the, the business professionally, did you have a mentor? Did you, did you guys have any major no. missteps? You kind of, Oh yeah, we had lots of major missteps and I think that, you know, we've had good managers since we, we started, but, um, there's a lot of lessons that you have to just learn through experience and, and, um, definitely some major, major screw ups and, and just kind of like, it's from the naivety of not knowing how things work and not knowing that, it is just this kind of like machine that's that's yeah. trying to use your thing. And it's and also, but the machine the machine is changing. I have the same the same issues within the photography industry. It used to be a very the music industry, albeit as shady as it was, it was a very rigid. Here's here's the label. Here's a contract. Mm-hmm. Here's distribution. Here's supposedly your royalties or what you know. So it's kind of set in stone, and then all those just kind of got washed away. Uh, what is the the biggest adaptation that you guys have had to? conquer in terms of getting the music out there still trying to make a living at it and then maintaining control like it, it. well i think in some ways our uh like just ineptitude when it comes to social media and the new ways of promotion i think it kind of came around to sort of solidify a fan base that we have for the band that is really hardcore and and so maybe we're we don't have as large of a following or or as like much kind of we're not out there as much but the fans that we do have it's loyal are, are loyal and kind of like seem to like connect with the music on a personal level not that that yeah. doesn't happen with all other types of music sure, but, sure. but, but the, um the numbers I, I think that i really consider that to be more of like a success what success is than like you know well because it has endurance like you know it's it's actual loyalty that music means something you know as opposed to i know it's like the you know it's the long tail theory Broadcasting, the traditional definition is is dead because it's just so fragmented. Mm-hmm. So it's all really just about like finding a loyal niche and being able to maintain that. Yeah. And people can make a great living off of that, whether it's podcast or music or whatever. But that's a sea change. It's fun. It's so interesting. You talk about social media and you look at these sometimes and like, oh, this person has 15 million followers. You know, 15 years ago, if 15 million people knew about something, we would both know about that. Right. You know what I mean? Like, there was no such thing as like somebody having 15 million fans without generally the public knowing who they are. You know, that's that's really interesting how that's changed. Um, Let me ask you this What what was your first entree into music? Did you have, when you were seven, was your 
music inspiration from FM radio, from your parents? Do you have older siblings? Like, who turned you on to music? It was, um, yeah, mostly my family, my parents. You uh, come from a musical background? Or they were just Yeah, famous? I mean, my dad played guitar, and he was the first one to, like, take me and show me an electric guitar running through his, like, Fender amp. He played in a cover band in Missouri in the 70s, I think. Um, okay. But but they had my mom and dad both had a good record collection of a lot of classic stuff and so, so I was yeah so your foundation was solid you grew up on whatever Beatles Stones mm-hmm. Garfunkel classic Mayfield, rock and also Taylor. like Talking Heads and my dad was a huge Bob Dylan Neil Young fan those kind of like kind of the big the big names um, and then so who when you first branched out and started listening to you know your own music was there a point when you're 13 years old and all of a sudden you're like, oh, this is this, I'm into this, not that. You know, was there like a, a, a break off moment from the music that you grew up getting from your parents? And then, yeah, well, I think when I was a little older, when I was a little older, it, it shifted more so that my sister was more influential. My older sister was more influential on what I would listen to. And then, you know, it was like early, early 90s. So I was just into kind of stuff I would hear on the radio, but, you know, the big, grunge and rock yeah, acts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but also kind of it, funnily, it, I never kind of uh, rejected the music that my parents liked. That, all, that was pretty constant throughout my life of like, you know, I still like all the music that they would play when I was little. So you recently did a movie with Chris Chantile, who owns a pilgrim shop in Brooklyn. It's a really interesting project to work on. Like, can you tell me a little about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that was, I guess, through my connection with friends through uh, the label Mexican Summers, how that kind of originated. Um, and in 2014, we they took us on this trip to Nicaragua and they had this idea to make a music and surf film and we would record down there. And it was sort of this like incredible, like amazingly, the trip just kind of fell apart in this really great way. And that that, that particular trip never manifested into a, a film and then a couple of years later, they, they like got reorganized and did it right. And, and so I went on a trip to Iceland. I had been there before, and I was just so excited to surf. I love cold water surfing. I love like really remote places. And the local guides took us to like just this northwestern fjord area, and it was surfing Arctic swell. It was Amazing. so cool. Yeah. And so you were on this trip, and you are with Cassia Metter, mm-hmm. Steph Gilmore, Chris, obviously, like a production crew. You're essentially like on tour to a degree. Like, yeah. were there some similarities <laughs> or differences between touring with a band in terms of the, the banality of the actual traveling itself, or like the camaraderie of the people on it? Did it, did it have were, a wholly different experience? The, the group camaraderie was great. I think um, there wasn't that much similarity with touring because you, you can't look anywhere in Iceland without it being like this magical vista you know it's like impossible so it's, it's really it was kind of like this this magical journey we were on in, in different vans driving around and my friend Conan who we ended up making the music for it he was there and Leanne Curran and Andrew Kidman was also a friend um so it was a really good solid group and the the schedule must have been very freeform I'm essentially you're taking cues from mother nature yeah it was all tour manager it was all like dependent it. on the local local guys who would just be like, and we, they, they weren't really telling us much, you know, they would kind of direct us to be like, okay, walk up by that waterfall and walk down. But then we just be in the car for 
couple hours and they wouldn't really tell us and we'd just arrive at this remote place and sometimes they're a wave, sometimes they weren't. So there was a method to their madness. I saw the film, it's beautiful. Like mm-hmm. There definitely seemed to be a, a method to the madness. But um, for, I guess, the listeners who don't know the background, a lot of the surfers who were brought on the trip were specifically invited because they were going to be scoring the music for their segment. Is that fair? Uh, well, just it was kind of like in each segment for the film, I think there's four of them, there would be musicians that would go and then five, four or five like top-notch surfers. But the musicians were all surfers too, um, to varying degrees. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it was kind of a cool combination. And, and then... They they went on the trips. We all went on the trips, and then came back and made music. And do you feel that the the personal connection of you being on that trip and them knowing that you would be scoring parts of their section did that have any sort of effect on either how they surfed or the vibe? (laughs) No, I think in Iceland on that particular trip, it was kind of like surf whatever we could get because it was sort of erratic where the waves were, and they ended up getting the best waves that that made most of the segment after. Conan and I left Iceland, which is unfortunate. So we're recording here in Rockaway, and it's not quite winter, but it's it's winter adjacent right now. Um, speak to the difference between Rockaway in the summer, especially in the last five years, or certainly post Sandy, is really transformed, and mm-hmm. you know I would say mostly a net positive. And but there's just so much to do. Uh, all summer long, and there's like people. There's a huge influx of people coming out here, and there's like salt and skin and surf and yeah. bands and 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 the surf club and great food. And there's sometimes waves, and almost to the minute on Labor Day, that really changes. And yeah. the falls are really gorgeous out here, and I like it because there's essentially, let's say, 100 people that live out here full time in the surf community that you really like know and, and mm-hmm. love, and and you get to actually spend time with those people in the fall. And there's actually waves. Cut to December, January, February. It can get very bleak out here. Yeah. I mean, to the extent where I'm just like, why am I here right now? And you start to really um, see some of the the wearing around the edges, and it's freezing, and it's cold, and it's windy. I guess my question is, why did you choose to live out here? And then has that affected your inspiration in music different than if you lived in, you know, Williamsburg or Venice or any of these other creative hubs? Right. Well, I've been in New York uh, for 15 years almost, and first came to Rockaway in 2009. Um, so up until then, I was living in Brooklyn and, and various places, and, and I think I've just always been intrigued by and drawn to the sort of extremities of, of this city. Of, and I, w- I would, I was, before I ever came here, I would drive around Brooklyn and Queens and just explore, and I would go out to Coney Island, usually by myself. Um, I was really intrigued by City Island, which I've still never been to. Um, it's a very interesting place. Go get some seafood out But for there. some reason, yeah. I never came through Rockaway. Um, so because of my lifestyle and, and job, I travel so much that I think it's I'm pretty lucky. It's way more bearable when you can jet off and go somewhere warm. And come back, in, and you really have like fresh eyes but to the, appreciate there's it. There's definitely a look on the faces of people that are like, here nonstop from December through February where they're like, like, you know, they're, they've seen a battle. <laughs> they got that thousand, thousand yard stare. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, do you, do you find it, do you find it inspiring in the sense that you're like, say in the wintertime, there's not a lot of distractions. Like if it's, if it's overcast and there's no waves and it's 10 degrees outside, like pretty good motivation to stay inside and make Yeah. Music. And it takes what, like an hour to get 
anywhere where there's other like civilization and restaurants and stuff. So, well, I still I still explore the farther reaches of Brooklyn and Queens. I like finding restaurants out here. Um, I just it's kind of like more more fun to to take chances and and find places that are really off the the beaten path. I mean, even as long as I've been coming out here, there are still places in Rockaway that are like wait, what is this place? You know, yeah. like Uptown is pretty, you know, um, Breezy Point, kind of bedroom community, and it's kind of been what it is for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you go farther down the peninsula and then certainly on the bay side, like there are some crazy places back yeah, there, definitely. like still to this day. I mean, there's you know? like the giant um, landfill that sticks out into the bay, which I used to used to be able to drive up on it. And I think it's, it's going to be a park pretty soon. But that like is pretty... A uh, surreal place. You're on this giant hill, and you can see JFK and see the ocean. And then um, I've tried surfing recently in kind of novelty spots in Far Rockaway when there's really big swell, and that's been that's been exciting. Just kind of taking a chance on something where you're the only one there. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it's so it's fascinating from a perspective growing up in California, where it's you're priced out real estate wise anywhere remotely yeah. close to the beach. Whereas here, if you farther downtown you go, there's section eight housing essentially like on the beach. It's yeah. just, and you know, it's very peculiar. It is unusual, like I said, especially since it's New York and it's and it's in every other big city, the ocean front is like the top real estate. Yeah. It is it's weird. And also that that's also a kind of source of some of the I don't know, Rockaway has a very uh kind of unique vibe as a community too because there really is like every every level of living here you know um and i think i like that it's real in that sense you know that it's it's a uh, it's not like kind of like whitewashed kind it's, of living I've, the, the gentrification the way it's happened out here is is really unique I and mean, whereas most communities you have demographic A being pushed out by demographic B whereas here it's almost like they're stacked on top of each other and mm-hmm. so like um, there, I would almost characterize it as a, as a polite indifference sometimes, but there really isn't. I, I've never had any problems out here, and I, I love the diversity of it. So it makes it the most interesting, you know, like walking, especially during the winter, during a snow session, like carrying a surfboard, like you get some crazy looks yeah. like from the neighborhood, but it's generally friendly. You know, everyone's just like, oh, a crazy white boy or whatever, yeah, you yeah. know, and it, I think it makes it, it's a really special place because of that. I, I love being, you know, I, I know my neighbors, I'm friendly. Every, every, Everybody's very friendly around here. And that was one major shift as catastrophic and disastrous as Sandy was for the community. When I was staying out here before Sandy, there was this sort of like really palpable tension and sort of this sort of like almost like the brink of like just like weird things would happen, like cars would go screeching around and people yelling and fighting. There was a sort of like, like in Ghostbusters, this kind of like uneasy negative energy and Sandy was totally destructive and awful, but afterwards it sort of brought the community together and absolutely and it was like more of like a forgiving and sort of sympathetic I think thing. yeah, I think some of the the tension that that existed you know for the you know lack of a better cliche the mustached Williamsburg crew that like quote unquote discovered Rockaway as a little bit of of i don't know, just t- tension or resentment I guess the best way I could describe it is like. 
when your favorite band in high school gets really popular, you know, there's a kind of mm-hmm. this sense of like, wait, this is, but this is my play. Who are yeah. you? You know, this yeah. is my, and, and, and there was a little bit of that. And then I think after Sandy, like the said mustache kids from Williamsburg were the same people that were digging out people's basements and doing yeah. like a lot of like incredibly generous, um, you know, in some cases life-saving work out here. And I, I think that helped kind of really just ease a lot of the tension and, and, yeah. and start fresh. Definitely. Um, were you out here for the duct tape? Recently? I was, yeah. I unfortunately I had to be in California for a previous family engagement during that week, mm-hmm. and it was like I almost had to go on antibiotics for FOMO. Like, <laughs> yeah, so it was like the biggest weekend in Rockaway history, basically. You know, Rockaway's coming out party, and I missed it. Um, highlights, lowlights. Do you have a good time? I had a good time. Yeah. Um, I mean, the the waves like Rockaway didn't really show off in terms of the waves it can bring. It was it was pretty the little tiny peelers that they served on the the final day. But um, you know, I think that the it was a good match. Like the kind of sort of scrappiness of the duct tape fit in well in Rockaway, and it it all just stayed very like relaxed and and easy. Yeah, nice. I mean, I got the sense. Obviously, you know, incredible waves versus no waves would be a, a better scenario. But for that contest in particular it seems like so much more about just the like the community and like the the activities after the event and yeah. and also just being able to have it happen in this particular community which adds so much just organic flavor to the whole thing yeah um so i, I assume everyone had a great time i think so yeah, yeah it was really fun um yeah <laughs> who did you look up to growing up musically and did you or have you had an opportunity to cross paths with a lot of people that you used to kind of I don't know, idolize, but place on a pedestal, and then now you've had an opportunity to almost be a peer and and get to know them on a different level. I mean, I don't, I don't think anyone from when I was really little, but definitely through through making music and kind of reaching out to people, gotten to work with Sonic Boom on our second album, and uh, like Jennifer Harima, and I kind of, it, I think it's been really nice to meet people that I spent so much time listening to their music and kind of wondering what they were like, what their creative process is, and sort of having this mystery and and a lot of times I think you know people talk about being disillusioned when they meet their idols or people that they worship in some way uh, but I I think I've been really I can say I can say that the people that I've met that have been really influential have all been very down to earth and like just kind of humble people um and that's great, and I think I think the same thing in a way like the surfing community like I, having toured every like pretty much every corner of the earth and surfing like the people that I've met through surfing while on tour it's it's really nice to have this web around the world and and just really you know down to earth good communities that's really cool and what about like have other than people that maybe personally meant a lot to you have you just circumstantially or random cross paths with like people uh, that are generally large figures are just kind of like wow that was strange be it like I don't know, David Lee Roth or like, so, I mean, you must've crossed paths with some very peculiar celebrities and had some like. A little bit. I mean, I think, you know, back when everything was really blowing up for us was like 2008. We probably had some, I don't know. I think I remember some of the times, but we had some run-ins with, with celebrities, but those were like celebrities from that era, which. Well, that, which is, which is well, I mean, that speaks to the, the, what we were talking about before with, with the long tail theory is, is like, I, I have a feeling that, you know, your fans, they're, they're pretty loyal and, and you guys are diverse enough in terms of the, the, the content that you put out that they've st- stuck with you, the core fans have. Um, 
as opposed to somebody who's on a reality show in 1998, yeah. you know, and like they're not, there's no longevity for that. You know? Yeah. And I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like you have, you have like a really desirable amount of fame, like just the right amount in terms of like you, uh, you know, you, I would consider you extremely successful. You're, you're, you, I think you consider yourself fortunate to get to do this, but at the mm. same time, like you can walk down the street, like do you have any issues getting recognized or harassed on that? No. Level? And I, I think that that's, that's a um, result of not wanting that, you know, I think some people want that and think that that's inseparable from, from fame or success. Um, and like, like I said, I, I think, in my mind, success is connecting with people through the music, which the music that I make is really personal for my own reasons, but I try to leave it sort of open so that other people can connect on a personal level. And I've had, like, usually the people that come up and say something, a lot of times they'll say really, like, deep and meaningful things where it's, like, I'm taking it back because people have, have told me, like, really, like, the most kind of intense struggles you can go through as a human, people have used music that I've made to get through it, which is really insane. Well, I think um, that speaks to the fact that your music actually resonates with them and you're not just a, a public figure that, yeah. that they're like in, excited to be you know, meeting in the flesh. Yeah. I mean, it seems like so many people, especially today more than anything, where you know, Instagram is gone from a platform to share photos to like a personal branding channel for everybody. You know? And I, I yeah. think it used to be that the, the, the art or the thing or the creation was first and then fame was this, this kind of maybe necessary, like bizarre thing that was like attached to it. And it's almost flipped completely on its head now. People lust for the fame first without the actual content behind yeah, it. Yeah, you know? I think that's true. So that said, what do you think, what's the biggest misconception of, of fame? If, if not from you personally, you've definitely been in the proximity of some I think the biggest misconception would be that it somehow provides a solution or an answer or like you, you figure something out with it. Um, when in reality, you're still just a human and you're still just living in this kind of bizarre reality where nothing really makes sense. It's not like everything makes sense. Like you're famous and now you're happy and you figured it out and now you can just enjoy it. It's like, you know, I think that... Um, it seems so obvious once you say it, <laughs> yeah. but at the same time, like I can absolutely get into the mindset of like basically being extremely famous is an extension of you. All of a sudden, you're popular in high school, and we can all remember being in high school, like having insecurities or like looking towards somebody else, being like, "Wow, if only, if only I was fill in the blank, like the rock star that had the band in school or the jock or whatever it may be," and so. It seems easy to fall into that trap to be like, oh, well, if the world loved me, like I would be happy. Yeah. But obviously that's not the case. No, I think it's like <laughs> people just kind of are always uh, hoping that someone else has answers to the big questions, you know, and, and maybe people think that with fame comes answers, but it's not true. What's been the biggest disappointment of having to either understand that or a big of, of your career? Like, something that you thought that that this level of success or this benchmark that I met would give me this and it didn't really deliver. Well, I I don't really have like I think that it's more it's sort of the disappointment or disillusionment when you realize that other people kind of are looking to you to provide that and so some people will be really disappointed when they are like oh 
you mean it's not it's not like that or or you know some people like are dependent on on us for their livelihood and that's definitely something that if i had to if i had are you to, talking about like creatively like for their soul or like in terms of no, no, actual I, like I mean, touring like, touring crew yeah I, I mean that's you know bandmates managers um to a tiny degree like booking agencies um you know when when you're kind of like it's a machine yeah the the machine is dependent on like this weird like pulling this weird creative thought from the ether and like everybody's kind of just looking at you, so they're like, when are you, when are you gonna make some more music? Yeah. You know, it's kind of a weird setup, I guess. Um, what's in <laughs> what's in store for twenty twenty? What are you looking forward towards? Um, I'm just trying to expand um, and kind of work on a bunch of different projects. I want to work more as a mixer, producer, and uh, collaborator, and just gonna keep making MGMT music. And I don't know, just. Uh, I don't think it's going to be a big touring year, so just kind of like, um, just kind of see. I, I enjoy being home, and I got like a bon- I got a bonsai tree. What's your home life like when you're not on tour? Do you, I mean, you have a you have a, a, a beautiful little uh, castle you've created for yourself here. Like, yeah, uh, I just listen to records and kind of um, do a lot of sitting around. Do you get what do you get inspired by like non musically that inspires your music, whether it's Books or art, conversation, um, surfing. Well, so I do love Rockaway because it's so separated from everything. But whenever I go into Manhattan and go to a museum or go to go to the Met, um, that's really inspirational for me. And I, I want I want to do it more. Seeing other art and seeing other people and their own personal creative journeys is really inspirational. When you're in the process of creating music, what is your relationship with? Outside music is it something that you constantly need to to source inf- or to source inspiration from, or is there a scenario where you like box yourself in and you don't want to hear anyone else's music? You want to just be able to focus on yours. It seems like I've gotten into this thing where I don't listen to a lot of music that's that is sort of would be in the same category as music I make, but I do a lot of record collecting and go to record shops, and that's usually more for things that I with DJ. So it's more like dance music. And then when I'm home, I listen to just like ambient and kind of like new age music. Yeah. So it, it's not anything that seems to interfere with songwriting because we're writing more kind of like pop, I guess. Like on a day-to-day, hour-for-hour level, do you find yourself listening to, to actually listening to vinyl, streaming, your existing collection? Like how, how, do, you, how do you consume music? No, I listen to vinyl a lot, um, and I don't do that much streaming when I'm driving. I drive a fair amount, and, and I listen to um, <laughs> Spotify sometimes. I think Spotify is pretty, like, there, whatever. The al- algorithm is it's pretty solid. Like, yeah. I've found a lot of music that I never knew. That's funny, Pandora. I gave up on Pandora, too, because they would always... You put on a station and they would play this bullshit live version that must have been cheaper to license or yeah. something like I don't know. You speak. What are the, is that? What they're doing? Is that why? Um, that there's a, is there a, no? I think some. Yeah, sometimes artists uh, don't license their their studio catalog. So yeah, usually it'll be like like legally reason. and and financially, there's an incentive or a reason why you would have a live version instead of it's probably the label like withholding the catalog. <laughs> just to, to wrap this up what what are you looking forward to most from the coming year what do you got in store for 2020 hopefully I'll be going back to Hawaii in January <laughs> uh, which is one of my 
favorite things for to business do. or pleasure? For for pleasure. Nice. Yeah, and then um, going to play some shows in Mexico, and otherwise just looking forward to you know home time. Good, good. Well, thanks so much for doing this, man. And uh, I think it's been really, really interesting to get into get inside your head and your home yeah. for, for the hour. <laughs> and uh, I'll see you in the lineup. Sounds good. <laughs> Cheers, dude. Yeah. Sounds good. This episode of The Plug was produced by Bucci with audio engineering and original music by Peter Buckingham. Thanks for listening and a huge thanks to today's guests for dropping in. If you like this episode, hit subscribe and be sure to tune in for future conversations. Mm-hmm.